All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 59 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Lauren. I'm here with my sister, Renee. And our guest today is Dr. Greg Kelly from Neurohacker. We're so excited to have him. We are huge fans of Neurohacker Collective, their products, and also all the amazing research they're doing about nootropics and also sleep. So we did touch on daytime and nighttime nootropics today, but we really dug pretty deep into sleep research and how it's affecting our immune health, really pertinent right now, and also just our overall well-being and energy throughout the day, uh, how it affects weight management and cravings, and then also like the differences in our chronobiology between summer and winter and how that changes and how much sleep you need, how much sleep debt is normal. 
really fascinating stuff. I learned a ton. We thought we knew a lot about sleep, but this <laughs> really went even deeper. So we're so excited to talk to Greg Kelly and to share this episode with you. Before we get started, I wanted to share with you his bio. Dr. Gregory Kelly is a naturopathic physician. He is the director of research and development at Neurohacker Collective and author of the book Shape Shift. He was the editor of the Journal of Alternative Medicine Review and has been an instructor at the University of Bridgeport in the College of Naturopathic Medicine, where he taught classes in advanced clinical nutrition, counseling skills, and doctor-patient relationships. Dr. Kelly has published numerous articles on various aspects of natural medicine and nutrition, contributed three chapters to the textbook of natural medicine, and has more than 30 journal articles indexed on PubMed. His areas of special interest and expertise include nootropics, anti-aging, and regenerative medicine, also weight management and chronobiology of performance and health. He has a wealth of knowledge. Please help me in welcoming him to the show. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have you here. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. It's my pleasure to be on your show. Looking forward to it. So we really want to talk about all things sleep related and we're huge fans of Neurohacker. So we will get into the company and what you guys are doing there. But I love to just hear your background and hear how you got into this type of work. Yeah. So, um, so I went through Navy ROTC in college. I was fortunate enough. They paid for my education, got out of school in 84 as an engineer. And then, um, as a trade for them paying for my college, I had to do six years. Um, most of it, I ended up doing active duty. So I was a, an officer in the Navy during most of, I'd say, 84 to I got out in 89. And um, my interest in sleep and actually nutrition and exercise all goes back, frankly, to that time period. And, you know, one of the things with being an officer in the Navy and on being ships, I have tremendous personal expertise in being sleep deprived. <laughs> So of course. Um, yeah. there was um, practice. a period where there was only two people that stood my watch. So basically, if our ship was underway, one of us was on watch for six hours, followed by another person for six hours, and that just rotated on and on. And then you still had to do your job in between those, you know, six hour shifts. So it was pretty brutal. Wow. So, wow. so anyways, like, you know, the... Like, I feel like I have a lot of both personal and then practical experience with patients with sleep. So after the Navy, my, you know, I would guess the easiest way to describe this is I had felt like my whole life had been fairly scripted up until that point. So I decided that when I got out, I was going to basically become, a, I think I would have said gypsy back then, but basically a vagabond traveler. And to do that, I realized I needed to be able to take better care of myself because I was planning to go to places like Thailand and Indonesia, places that you know have less you know medical capabilities than we would have had at the time, so that led me into what you know is currently the biohacking space, really focusing on things that I could do to make myself more resilient and take with me to make sure that if I did get sick, I would be able to self care. And from there, that led me to naturopathic medicine. So that's kind of like the really crunched down version. So just to yeah. take a step back, how were you getting through those shifts and how and when did you realize that sleep was so important? Did you crash and burn? Were you using stimulants? How did you get through the day? You know, I never drank coffee back then. I think my entire time in the Navy, I probably had the equivalent of maybe a pot of coffee. Uh, Navy coffee was horrible. Like it just was like really bad tasting. <laughs> just dirt. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think part of it is just the resilience you have being in your 20s. 
you know, I don't think my body would have stood up to that at this Mm -hmm. point in my life. So part of it was that. Part of it was any downtime I had away from the ship. I lived in Hawaii for most of the time I was um, doing that. All the time I was doing that. We called it port and starboard was the way we would refer to that watch schedule. And if um, on the weekends I would go to the beach and sometimes probably sleep for three or four hours on the beach, just catching up. So I think, you know, while that's not ideal, it would be the idea of sleep debt in um, sleep research that during the, the, that time period, I was building up a big debt, but I was at least able to pay some of it off on weekends or when we weren't out at sea. And a great way to do it. Grounding next yeah. to the ocean with sunshine. <laughs> Sorry. The other just... thing I would say that, that, um, so at the time I was really like at the mid eighties, one of the popular diet books was, I want to say it was called Eat to Win. Um, Elson Haas, I believe was the author, but it was what you'd think of as a high complex carbohydrate, low fat diet. Um, so lots of baked potatoes, brown rice, um, and very like if there was one algorithm, it was look for the fat on something and choose the low fat version. So, you know, not, you know, definitely not what I would do now. But what I found at the time was I just had immense food cravings, which now I would chalk up to being sleep deprived. Because that's one of the things we know is when the brain sleep deprived, one of the compensations is essentially eating, especially fattening food. Yeah. So I think that was how my body compensated to a degree uh, mm. more than anything else. And then the other thing is where I stood my watch. So this was the 80s, a very different time. I stood my watch in an air-conditioned long booth with all the gauges and bells and whistles in engineering. And that was where everyone took their smoke break. So this little place that I spent 12 hours a day, even though I was a non-smoker, I would have still been getting exposed to nicotine nonstop. Oof. So what would happen if you were exposed to that type of lifestyle now? (laughs) Um, did you ever have a crash and burn later on I, in life? You know, I never have. When I went to naturopathic school, one of the things that I found interesting is I was one of the only students in my class that hadn't had a major health challenge, been helped by a naturopath, and then, you know, diverted. For me, it was um, much more selfish. I found out about naturopathic medicine, trying to learn more to take care of myself, and just thought, oh, this is a cool profession that seems to have a lot of that. So I would say the the one thing more, I wouldn't say crash and burn, but like when I was in my twenties, I was much more prone to the party lifestyle, you know, so I never crashed and burned from it, but my life was more out of balance, if that makes sense. Like I exercised like crazy, ate neurotically, but would drink a whole bunch on the weekends where now my life feels pretty much in balance. It's amazing what you can get away with in your (laughs) twenties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I remember in like high school and college, I could sleep four hours and run, run, run all day long, dance, work out, do whatever. And I didn't drink coffee until I was 20 or 21. Like I never touched caffeine, but I could survive on no sleep. And now that would completely kill me. (laughs) Can't do that anymore. Or make you really sick. So I would love to talk about how sleep deprivation really is harming our immune systems. You wrote an amazing article. I think you've written many articles and research publications about the effects of sleep deprivation. Can you tell us, like, I know there's hundreds of studies. How would you even begin to explain this connection? So I think like one of the funny things we've been talking about, because we're going to be launching an immune product I mentioned to you before we started recording come September, but there was an article in the Atlantic. There's a, a couple of authors from there that I'm a big fan of, but he wrote a, I think it was a week ago, Sunday. So the beginning of August, he wrote an article on the immune system and he started off 
immunity is super complicated. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so, so we have this like amazingly comp- complicated system, all the different kinds of cells, um, like in a general sense, the way that the immune system is partitioned. And I don't know if this would help, but there's a, a pretty famous book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And in that book, so Kahneman, along with um, another person that's passed away, were the people that found a lot of, or discovered a lot of the human biases, like the cognitive biases our brain has, literally the blind spots. And so in his Thinking Fast and Slow, he introduces this idea that the brain has two characters, system one and system two. So system one is the intuitive, fast thinker. System two is much more when there's more computation that's needed. So it's the slow thinker, it's deliberate, it's logical. So a good way to partition it is all the things you think of as executive functions or social cognition. Those are all system two. Like anything that takes a lot of mental effort, that would be system two. And the immune system's partitioned the same way. We have what's called the innate immune system, which we inherit. So it would be exactly like a system one character, like an intuitive thinker. And then we have our adaptive, which is what the immune system, the B and T cells that learn. So all of these systems are partitioned. So I would say the same. The immune system has fast and slow thinking. It's the most like fundamental way to think about it. But both of those two systems are, are talking and listening to each other. So the key thing that happens when we don't get enough sleep is the communication goes crazy. So the, the communication, the way I usually would describe it, and this goes to engineering, is communications about signal and noise. So there's always a baseline level of noise in any system. So that would be the cytokines are the communication molecules in immunity. And when we don't get enough sleep, that noise level goes way up. So the amount of signal you would need to have a meaningful response becomes hard to get. So I don't know if that makes sense, but basically Mm -hmm. immune system communication would be what breaks down. And so the way that then plays out, and they've done a couple studies on this, but one of the studies they did, they sleep deprived people and then exposed them to a virus that would cause a, a cold. And what they found is that that made a huge difference in the people that actually experienced a cold and the people that, despite being exposed to it, did not. Right. So that like a, a thing to kind of wrap away is that we're all going to be exposed to all kinds of you know external pathogens through the course of you know, a, a, you know, definitely a, a season or a year. And the amount of sleep we have had going into that is going to dictate to a significant degree whether we get exposed to that and our immune system handles it in such a way that we may not even ever experience we were sick or that we get very sick. That so that's the, the take home for sleep <laughs> is that yeah. it's going to be one of the primary foundational things that colors what happens when we get exposed. So like exposure is you know, obviously there's things we can do to, to limit that, right? Everyone is, you know, or not everyone, but most people are doing a lot now to do that. And, you know, under, you know, so say pre the, the shelter in place, I went to the Arnold in um, Columbus, Ohio, the Arnold Schwarzenegger conference, the big fitness conference. And so that, you know, like I wanted to make sure I was far from like that. My sleep debt was paid down before doing that conference, you know, yeah. no matter what, um, the landscape would have been just traveling. You're going to, ex- you know, be exposed to potentially more pathogens than you would in the comfort of your own home. So we really have control over this. I mean, I guess there's people are exercising control to protect themselves, but this could be number one, right? 
And yeah. I love the analogy about the noise. That's funny. You're not the first guest on our show to talk about the noise in the body and how we want to calm down the noise. I like that analogy a lot. I mean, noise is just a, to have adaptation. Noise is a, a resource for creativity is usually the way you would think of it. So noise is a great thing, but too much noise is the difference between us being able to communicate pretty readily here versus mm -hmm. in a loud bar you know, in Pacific Beach, so near me in San Diego, we would have to be shouting to get that. And so the last thing we want is our immune system to have to shout at each other to try to get the job done. And so yeah. I think of sleep as something that's, that's um, quiets that noise level. And that's super important then to be for the immune cells to be able to hurt, be heard when they have to speak up. <laughs> we just want to be heard. Yeah. <laughs> so can you yeah. talk about the difference in hours needed? Because I feel like everyone kind of has a, a sense or intuition about how many hours they need. And that's always like a topic like, oh, I need this many hours. I need this many hours. Can you talk about the, the very stark contrast between six hours and eight hours and exactly why we've landed on those numbers? Yeah. So, um, well, what I think it's important when you look at those, like quality is always super important. You know, so when we're talking an average num number of hours of sleep, if we're not also figuring in quality, then it's, you know, pseudo like translational, mm -hmm. but, um, like in a general sense, what you would see is the younger we are up until about, you know, say like 17 or 18, um, the more sleep we would need. So, like an average adult, they'll usually recommend eight hours. But during that eight hours, we're not sleeping that whole eight hours. You know, if you're using an aura ring or you know any wearable or using an app on your phone, you, know, you might be sleeping 85, 90% of that if you're actually getting really great sleep. And so, you know, I think in general, a good target is that we're getting like we're in bed for about eight hours and that we're getting somewhere about seven hours sleep. But to me, the, the key thing with sleep is how we perform the next day. So even the, the tech, so I have an aura ring, I got an Apple watch. I, I <laughs> use Aura right apps. here. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I think they're great. I, I literally don't sleep a night without my aura ring. Um, and I, I think that the more important thing isn't the grade it gives me or the amount of deep sleep. I mean, I think that's good to track and useful. But how I perform the next day is ultimately the test of whether I get good restorative sleep. Like in reading Why We Sleep by Norm, or by um, Walker is his last name. One of the things he talks about is things like the spindles. So like these tiny waves that our brain makes and pulses through help us remember things that we learned. And Aura wouldn't be able to track that. I mean, we just don't have the wearable tech to track that. And so ultimately to me, if my aura ring said I slept great, but I was struggling to get through the day, I would go with the, the sensation of struggling that there was right. something that aura didn't detect that night. And conversely, if um, like one of the things, uh, so Qualia Night would be the, the new product that we launched a couple months ago. One of my personal experiences taking that is that I typically need a bit less sleep, like even time in bed, I'll be awake an alert about 45 to 60 minutes before I was um, taking that, but I perform really well the next day. So aura tends to give me a better score if with longer duration in bed. Right. And, same. And so I don't always necessarily get as good a score, but I'm getting more deep sleep and REM sleep during that smaller duration. So 
my translation would be the quality was better. So the quantity needed was less. Right. I've noticed the same. My scores haven't gone up drastically, but since I started taking Qualia Night, my REM and deep sleep are dramatically improved. So I was actually curious about that. I was like, why, how are these numbers going up? But overall, because I'm sleeping the, the same amount, maybe a little bit less, but you're right. The quality has been amazing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the funny thing about Qualia Night is, um, so before we start a project, we'll essentially, I draft out a document of what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, there's more to it than that. But the main things that the product was trying to do, it would, like I think thought of it as more like a nighttime nootropic. So something that you would take that would help you wake up the next morning and feel more ready to go. That over the course of then that next day, you would perform better. And over the course of the evening after taking it, you'd be more what I would think of as nighttime like state. So calm, relaxed, more able to you know, be a better social person around the people you cared about. And so I thought of sleep as the cherry on the top. Like, honestly, when I drafted this originally, it was as long as we don't mess up sleep and we do these other things, then like, I think it would be a, like a product I would take. And, um, you know, so that, that it supported much better sleep was a hope, but it wasn't necessarily what we like it wasn't a success criteria, if that makes sense. So you put two words together that we don't usually hear, nighttime nootropic. A lot of our listeners are familiar with nootropics, but usually it's like, take it before 10 a.m. because it's stimulating your brain for the day. So how does that work with the nighttime effect? So the way I, um, and I blogged about this, but just I just think of, in a sense, when we shift into like our daytime gear. So, you know, we know we have a big surge of cortisol then body temperature should actually be at its lowest, at least during the waking hours, right as we wake up. Things like um, acetylcholine pathway, dopamine, those are all daytime pathways that ramp up during the day. So when we support those early in the day, we would get that daytime nootropic experience. And then in the evening, those things are naturally ramping down and things like GABA, melatonin, those are ramping up. Cortisol, frankly, we want that level to go as low as possible around midnight. So that whatever that level gets down to, that would be to me, that's the noise, right? And we want that background level of cortisol Mm -hmm. to get as low as possible. Mm -hmm. So if we do all those things at night, the it's essentially working the daytime nootropic from the other end of the of the timeline. We'll experience a much better like daytime experience because all these things cortisol, it's it's all like in my signal to noise analogy, if we can get cortisol really low, the same signal at seven to nine in the morning will buy us a lot better communication for all the receptors listening to the cortisol signal. The same, like if we can get a better melatonin signal at 10, 11 at night and get that lower early in the morning, then that signal to noise is better. And that buys us like another day of, you know, really great function. So at least the way I think of it is you can always work at the same problem from two ends of the circadian spectrum. spectrum. So Mm. like one of the things, you know, getting back to sleep, when I used to make recommendations for people to sleep better, a lot of the recommendations I made were about how they started their day in the morning, not Mm -hmm. about things they were doing right before bed. Because, you know, the truth is you win and lose a lot of the sleep battle at the beginning of your day, not in the time period right before sleep. Right. Getting that morning sunlight. What are you eating for breakfast? I think people don't connect that with nighttime, but yeah, it makes such a big difference. 
Right. And in, in like the circadian system, since the those waves, like the height of one and then how low it gets, essentially interact with all the other waves, like the way I would describe it, we're a harmonic system, like we're, we're all these individual instruments, cortisol, melatonin, da, 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 but in a big symphony hall. And the songs played out over the course of the whole day. So you're trying to have the right notes strike at the right time. And so, you know, evening, especially early evening as we transition into night, ends up being a really critical time period, just as that early morning transition into day is. And like the analogy I would use is hitting the gas as we go into the day, and we want to be starting to put our foot easily on the brake as we're starting to decelerate into the evening. So really, that was what Qualia Night was designed to do, was to, to be something that starts to gently hit that brake, but also put a lot of things in. So go to cola is um, uh, centella asiatica is the botanical name, but that's, it would be thought of as a mental rejuvenator in Ayurveda. So, you know, for sure it would be one of their nootropics. And actually it's often mistaken with Bacopa, which is, you see in a lot of morning stacks, but is one that's because it tends to also work on that breaking system. It's a really great evening nootropic, one that you don't have to be concerned about causing issues with sleep, where it's some of your morning nootropics, you, like you said, would not be ideal to be taken, you know, at that time of day. I love that. I didn't even realize there were evening nootropics. So this is so fascinating to me, yeah. but yeah, this, that's funny. I was reading through the ingredients. I was like, I've seen all these, I see them in, in daytime nootropics. Like how is this working? But it really, I have to say, I have never slept better since I started taking quality a night. And I've been trying to cross-reference with the ingredients and figure out like, what was that missing piece for me? Yeah, because Lauren, you've tried everything for sleep. I have tried everything. (laughs) And I packed my sleep environment like, and I try to get my morning sunshine and reset my circadian. Like I've done all the right things. But those evening nootropics that are hitting the brakes, like you just explained, are really powerful. And I'm so fascinated with like the morning, like the quiet in the morning so you can hear the signal. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. So this goes back probably to around 2000. So I had a, I have a really close friend who would be a naturopath, but the generation a bit in advance of me. And so when I was a student, he was one of the most famous naturopaths. Like his company at the time was called Health Coach. So this was, you know, way before that was a, a thing, right? So I was doing a project with him where I would go from Connecticut, where I was living at the time to Redondo Beach and work a couple days every week. And we were sharing this beautiful condo right on by the pier in Redondo. And he's one of what I would say the only actual short sleepers that I've ever met. So for things like sleep, there's a bell curve. Most of us are going to need, you know, whatever the generically average amount is. But there's some people genetically that are going to be able to do well with much less. And he's like, I've only met two ever. And so, and he would be one. But his story at the time was that like sleep was a weakness. If you needed more sleep, that was kind of a, like a statement about your character more than anything (laughs) else. And so I want to say my first day sleeping in the place with Redondo at like five in the morning, he wakes me up to run on the boardwalk with him. I'm like, come back in two hours. (laughs) And (laughs) that would be me. (laughs) And, um, you know, so we end up, you know, starting to have, conversations about sleep. And one of his things at the time was he would get uh, muscle cramps 
quite frequently. And the way that he prevented that was he took high amounts of especially magnesium. And the main thing, as long as he took essentially superhuman amounts of magnesium, he didn't get the cramps. And so I had seen this study where when we were sleep deprived, our cells basically became magnesium resistant, just like insulin and cortisol that we can be resistant to hormones. We can be resistant to lots of things. And if you take a big enough dose of something, you create that separation between the noise and the signal, right? So he was hammering enough magnesium that he was overcoming that resistance. And I was just like, like, let me translate this study for you. So like <laughs> mine is you're sleep deprived, your cells are magnesium resistant. You're able to like currently overcome that by taking huge doses of it. But wouldn't it be better if you actually slept a little bit more, quieted the baseline, like, you know, overcame that resistance, like dampened the noise. It didn't have to rely on so much magnesium. And for him, that ended up only going from, so he was a four hour sleeper at the time. Five, five and a half was his sweet spot where, you know, the cramping, the need for that crazy amount of magnesium went away. Wow. That actually sounds kind of like our, our dad, who's also a biohacker. He can sleep like six hours and really seem, he seems to function pretty well. And we'll compare our aura ring scores, like he'll sleep six hours, I'll sleep nine hours, and we'll have almost identical, you know, readiness and sleep scores mm -hmm. for the day. He's 67, I'm 33. I'm like, did he just genetically get that ability to not need a lot of sleep? Some of it's probably that, you know, like that, like a true short sleeper, it's thought that that's genetic, like this person, Mark, the other person I knew was an uncle and um, he had been a... Um, he was like a Forrest Gump kind of character. Um, he married, you know, my mom's sister and had run away from home as a teenager. His uncle was a sheriff, like a, um, had a plane that um, sprayed crops in up San Luis Obispo area. And so he knew how to fly. So the Navy, he ended up being a pilot with, despite, I think he was 17 when he went into the Navy in World War II. And then, you know, was a pilot in a Korean um, war taught a lot of the like initial astronauts um, aviation. And so he was just a fascinating guy and eventually became a, a, a DO, an osteopathic doctor. And, um, and I lived with him in Alaska at one point as a teenager, my last year in the Navy, um, he was living in San Pedro with my aunt. And so I spent a lot of weekends with them. I was in Long Beach at the time. And so anyways, he was a, a real character, but he like my friend Mark really only needed about five, five and a half hours of sleep. And, um, and, but they're the only two. And I, I think the acid test for me is always how you perform the next day, you know? And the other thing that this is like a truism for me, at least personally, I, my story is if I can sleep, I need sleep. So with someone mm -hmm. like, you know, those two people and maybe your dad, their ability to repay sleep debt to me is accelerated. Hey there, this is Lauren, and I want to briefly interrupt this episode to tell you about Neurohacker Collective. Neurohacker is a team of scientists, medical practitioners, and biohackers whose mission is to advance human quality of life through cognitive research and, more specifically, through their line of cognitive-enhancing supplements. The company began with a focus on cognitive products with the launch of Qualia, its brain-supporting nootropic, and continues to emerge with powerful solutions to increase peak performance. My personal favorite is Qualia Life, which looks much like a multivitamin, but with many other vitamins and nutrients to nourish cell energy and optimize the aging process. More recently, I have fallen in love with Qualia Night, 
which is the first and only supplement that I can confidently say has dramatically changed my sleep and recovery for the better. All of their products are designed to help the body more effectively regulate its own biochemistry, restore homeostatic balance, and support the integrity of those internal processes over time so that the benefits last even after discontinued use. Be sure to head over to neurohacker.com and check out their amazing product line and take advantage of our 15% off discount code with code biohackerbabes. Again, that's neurohacker.com and the code is biohackerbabes for 15% off your order. So that like the, the way I understand sleep debt and repayment is if you take a newborn baby, so a normal sleep cycle is somewhere like an hour and a half to two hours. And during that, we'll cycle through, you know, slow sleep, deep sleep, and then REM sleep, and then back to almost a waking state and then recycle. And you can see that at least visibly on my aura ring, it actually shows like a brief waking that my brain's not aware of multiple times a night. And so in a newborn, they'll undergo like an act, like a waking cycle. They'll be awake maybe two hours and then immediately repay that, right? So that's what you see. And then over time, what happens in an infant is they actually build their body clock. And what your body clock allows you to do is defer payment longer. So instead of having to pay it back immediately when you build it up, you can defer the payment for a bit. And then as your body clock gets stronger and stronger, you can pay it back in an accelerated rate. So when you think of, um, you know, like a five-year-old, the general recommendation is about 12 hours of sleep. So they're, at that point, they've built a body clock, which has allowed them to defer payment until the evening but they have to pay it back one-to-one. By the time we're an adult, we can pay it back usually at least two-to-one, right? So for every two hours awake, we can pay back in one hour of sleep. So my story around short sleepers is somehow their genetics allow them to accelerate payback. So maybe they're paying back a three-to-one. For every three hours awake, they're able to repay that in just one hour of sleep. So anyways, that's how I think about it. And when you get into things like, you know, sleep apnea or things where people are sleeping much more and still not functioning well, it's because they're, they're not paying it back. Think of yeah. short sleepers. The key thing I think about is that there are people that for whatever reason, their, abil- their ability to repay sleep debt is just way more efficient than average. And yeah, that most yeah. people that think they're short sleepers probably aren't. There's very, very few is the consensus of the sleep experts that I've spoken with. Yeah, I'm I've curious about Dave Asprey. <laughs> but like our dad, as Renee said, can sleep six hours a night, but he also is an, an excellent napper. Like he'll just sit down and sleep for 20 minutes and then he'll be like, all right, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or so even just I meditate. Do that. He can yeah. meditate and just rebound. Well, and I think that probably makes a big difference. And my guess with Dave Asprey is just that as well. So I remember, and this was in naturopathic school, so I can't remember the book, but at the time... Um, I was much more into yoga. One of my hobbies, I taught a few classes in yoga and was fairly big into chanting. And so anyways, whatever I had read, it was a story about monks and whatever order they were in was famous for not needing a lot of sleep. And what they would do is for, like say at whatever the time was, at four or five in the morning, they would wake up and then they would chant like a Gregorian style chant for a couple hours and then start their day. And, you know, we're famous for working long hours out. I think they grew their own food or maybe grapes or maybe a whole bunch of things. But anyways, what I remember was they got a new abbot for the monastery. And he decided, well, you know, this sleep thing, we could be doing much more work 
if we got rid of this, um, like if we kept the sleep, but got rid of all of this chanting, like that's a distraction from getting work done. Um, as soon as he unplugged that, their ability to work well with only four hours of sleep went away. And ultimately they reintroduced the mm. chanting. So something about that chanting was doing a lot of what sleep was doing for the brain, even though they were awake for it. It was restorative and, in some way. Yeah. And so my guess would mm. be for people that meditate, you know, obviously we know like a, a short nap is going to pay off some of the sleep debt you accrued between waking and that nap. Right. So now there's going to be less debt to pay that night. So, yeah, I need to be careful about paying off my sleep debt during the day because I don't know how much you believe in the chronotype thing, but I'm a dolphin. So I don't, I don't nap well, but I can meditate in the afternoon. That will make me rebound. But if I nap, then I'm not tired enough to go to sleep. And I'm the complete opposite. Napping is my jam. Yeah. <laughs> I take a 30 minute nap sure. and it's like, I'm starting a whole new day over again. I'm like ready to rock. Yeah. I mean, so I, fascinating. in general, I would be a fan of napping, but again, like, I guess my, like my key thing going into naturopathic school, I had all these, um, ideas about what was like, right, essentially, right? Like this would be the best way to do something. And a key pivot I made during that was essentially appreciating the only thing that matters is how someone responds. So rather than fixating on the, the doing, let's fixate on how someone's responding. Because, you know, we are like, even in that, um, those chronotypes, right? There's a variety of chronotypes. I, I've met, again, not a lot of people, but a handful of people that well into adulthood are still on what I think of as a teenage chronotype, right? They're just late night people. And it seems they respond well to it, right? Their health is robust. None of the things I would normally associate with being on a, essentially a schedule that doesn't match um, what's mm -hmm. um, suitable for your biology seems to have affected them. So like my druthers is, okay, well, let's leave them alone, right? They've figured out something <laughs> that's working yeah. for them. Now, unfortunately, there's a fair number of people that think that, like they prefer that. So they stay on it. And, you know, quite a, a lot or quite often what I've seen is that those there's a subset of people that are those late night people that if you can shift them by having breakfast, early sunlight, things that would put them on somewhat of an earlier schedule, a lot of health things improve. So, you know, I, I think mm -hmm. it's always the key thing to me is like, all right, well, this is what you're doing, but how are you responding? And let's see if. Yeah. Um, and you'll never know if there's something more optimal if you don't try. Right. Like something could be working for you, but what if there's something better? And and I um I would naturally feel like I'm one of those like I've never been a person, even when I was sleep deprived, I couldn't go from sleep to like wide awake, pedal on the metal super quickly. So even now I'm um, 58, I have no like no problems waking up, being in a good mood, ready to go. And at one point in um so this was when I was in practice in Greenwich, I did a lot of bicycle riding. And the person I rode with most of the time on weekends was one of those classic, don't even talk to me till I've had my coffee, people. So if, <laughs> if we were um, like doing a, we did a Boston to New York ride for, to raise money for HIV. Like I think this was 99. That like we shared a tent on the nights. So I think we camped one night at stores where um, University of Connecticut is and one night at the park right by um, the water in Bridgeport, Connecticut. But that person, I had to get them coffee <laughs> to make sure that they could then be, you know, like a social human being. For me, I don't have that. But I th there's nothing wrong with that, that is, I guess, the key thing. Like the, I think it's 
great that we have a huge variance in preference mm-hmm. for when we sleep. Like all those things evolutionarily make sense to me. It would it'd be good to have a range of how people wake up, a, you know, right. healthy for a village to have some people that would want to be awake in the middle of the night and others that didn't want to be. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. But now because we're so independent and don't live in villages, it's kind of hard to relate to other to other people, especially like if you're socializing that one person that wants to go to bed or leave early, it's like, oh man, they're the party pooper. Or if you're in a relationship and going to bed at a different time, like it, it's different now because we've just become so independent in our lifestyles. Well, and then the thing too that I mentioned is I've dated over definitely since I've been concerned about sleep and body clock, two women that were on much later schedules that I was with for, you know, quite a bit of time. And rather than focus on evening again, like if you can focus on, you know, having breakfast a little earlier or something, even a smoothie a little earlier, you know, some sunlight, tryptophan can be a good amino acid early in the day if you're not getting much protein. Those things tend to shift the body clock earlier in the evening if you do them in the morning. So like I think of that as the Tai Chi approach. See if we can agree on a few things you can do early in the day and then let's not worry so much about the end of the day. And quite often that shifts it. The other thing I've seen, um, and this goes back to you know, even 20 years ago, one of the things I did for a couple of semesters was teach at the University of Bridgeport as part of their naturopathic program. And invariably, I would have students that wouldn't eat until lunch, you know, which is now a lot of biohackers in their you know, like desire to have a really small food window mm-hmm. you know, are shifting much later. And what I saw fairly frequently is that would shift them more into being a very late night person, which then wasn't great because school didn't care that they were a night person. And so again, like the way to try to counter that would have been with shifting their first meal much earlier. Because what tends to happen, maybe not so much if someone's intentionally time-restricted feeding, but for an average person, if, if their first meal is, starts later in the day, their last meal ends later in the day. You know, so, yeah. um, so someone that maybe wants to do the two meals a day, really like breakfast and lunch may be better than doing the lunch and dinner, depending yeah. on your lifestyle and schedule. But Yeah, I think some of the... Um, like the time-restricted feeding studies, there hasn't been a lot that's tried to test out comparing the timing of two different windows. But the little I've seen, it would look like on average, it's probably better to have it shifted a bit earlier. And that's socially harder to stick with. So ultimately, you know, there's a trade-off. Yeah, right. So a 5 p.m. dinner, give it to me. Oh yeah, me too. Well, the other thing... um, pretty much once a year for close to the last decade, I've gone to Europe, usually Spain more than anywhere else, but Southern Spain, I I tend to really like. And in September in Southern Spain, there's about 12 hours of daylight. And in San Diego, there's pretty much the same 12 hours during that middle of September. So in Spain, you always hear like, oh, well, they, you know, they're, they eat late at night and they're out, you know, with their families or on closets late at night. So one of, to me, an interesting thing is in San Diego at that time of year, the sunrise will be about 6.30 a.m., sunset will be about 6 p.m. or 6.30 p.m. So that's like the sun's 12-hour day. In Spain, it's about 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So it's just an arbitrary tagging to the clock, right? Like they're still 12 hours. 
So when you say they're eating at nine at night, they're literally eating an hour after the sun went down, which is pretty common in San Diego in September. Like to me, it's always important to orient to, to when the sun's coming up and going down, not the clock time, because that's an artificial thing. So yeah. What you so see maybe is, in the summertime, you're saying your feeding window can be larger than it would be in the winter? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I think, and also the other thing, and this was, um, I might be getting her wrong name wrong. I think it's T.S. Wiley is how she... Yeah, T.S. Wiley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she wrote a book in the late 90s called Lights Out. And one of her you know, hypotheses in the book back then was that we probably need more sleep in the winter than we do in the summer to be the same metabolic health. And I would say that seems to be a truism for most people. Like our, our physiology yeah. changes pretty substantially from the summer to winter and back again. We've got a couple of genes that are like almost residuals from hibernating mammals. And so we tend to make more cholesterol, more triglycerides, more like higher blood sugar all in the winter, you know, and for the, probably the same reason that those animals do it's, it's a survival advantage. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So if someone is trying to do that shift their waking hours to be a little bit longer in the summertime, how would you begin to do that? Because I, I've, I've started to entertain that because I'm always trying to get sunshine within an hour or two of waking up, but it's harder in summer because the sun comes up earlier. So early. Yeah. I think How do we begin that process? You know, so again, I don't know that it's as, as important nowadays it was, as it would have been evolutionarily. But I think like the key thing to me is the transitions early in the day and late sunset are the key ones. So for me, I'm a natural, like, you know, in bed 10 p.m., awake about, you know, quarter or six, six o'clock. And so this morning when I woke up, the first thing I did was go for a walk. Now, it's already, I think I was walking about 545 today down by the beach, and it's already now not quite sunrise then. So I'm up for that transition. And then fortunately, from literally my balcony, I can see the sunset for a good chunk of the year over the ocean. And right now there's no obstruction. So I, uh, one of my things is I go out and just, you know, at least spend that transition time. And then I figure as long as I'm doing the timekeeping stuff, my brain and body will handle the rest. I don't like whatever they decide they need, I'm cool with, right? Like my job is to make sure they get the timekeeping cues and they can sort out the rest. Mm, So, and then whatever they need, like, I believe my body knows way better than my mind what it needs. So my job is to make sure that I don't outthink it. Yeah. Just keep nourishing yeah. and the body will take yeah. care of the rest. Uh, one of my favorite studies, do we have a second for this? Oh, so we this have all like the a, time. I love hearing a, studies. Yes. This is a sleep study from the early 90s. and We wouldn't be able to do this anymore. But basically, there'd been a, a, enough studies where they would sleep deprive ice rats back then that they knew one of the predictable things is that eventually they went into a super catabolic state and started wasting away and then eventually died, right? So, you know, sleep deprivation was lethal. So my recollection of this study was they decided, okay, well, maybe if we gave them a high protein diet, that would be better, right? And so I think there was three different diets. There was essentially like a normal calorie diet, um, you know, rat child. There was that, that would be a high protein, but the same amount of calories. And then for a third group, they just said, okay, well, we'll just make really fattening rat chow and let them eat whatever they want. And so of those three groups, the one that was sleep derived, eating normal amount of kind of the balanced rat chow, the normal amount, but high protein, or left to eat as much as they want, which one do you think survived the longest 
when they were sleep deprived. Hmm. I kind of want to say the first one, the one that had controlled the controlled amount, but not the high protein. That's okay. my guess. And <laughs> Tell us, please. <laughs> okay. So, um, so the group that was allowed to eat as much as they wanted outsurvived the others by a lot. And they ended up eating huh. about almost two and a half times more food. Wow. And Did they become so obese? They, well, I mean, the whole thing is right. Preventing going into a catabolic state. Right. right? So they weren't so, wasting away. Like, I so mean, even protein it, didn't matter. Right. Like in the context of this, you know, sustained sleep deprivation, letting them do what their intuition dictated was more advantageous in a survival hmm. sense, right? So I can see this being applied to people today, right? We would rather be fat and obese and survive sleep deprivation than to sleep deprive and waste away. Yeah, so that would be my story. Like yeah. I think of, um, not that I ever read Glamour magazine, but back when I was um, researching <laughs> a book I wrote on like sleep, um, shape and there was a chapter on sleep, I came across this challenge that Glamour Magazine did. You know, I think it was like 15 years ago now. But essentially, they challenged this small group of women to sleep an hour more a night, and you know, then got you know the, the feedback, the testimonials, and literally they all lost weight. You know, anywhere between three and seven pounds just by going from seven hours to essentially eight hours in bed. And so, Amazing. sleep has these huge interactions with shape, for lack of a better way to describe it. But going back to that hibernatory element, right? So if a hibernatory animal will get fat on the same amount of calories as the days start to get shorter. So that same amount, the calorie count is irrelevant, right? Their physiology has changed to make it easier to gain body mm -hmm. fat, but starting in late summer and then into the fall, right? Because they need to mm -hmm. do that to be able to survive. And then you know, hibernation, they basically are sleeping that off. So the way I think of it, and this might, you know, be oversimplified and, and or wrong, right? But that when we gain weight, because we're sleep deprived, there's essentially a part of our brain that's saying, okay, well, this person may eventually hibernate. And so because to repay that sleep, so I better be more prepared for that. And more prepared would be more body fat. And so wow, that's <laughs> the way I would think of it. And yeah. so I know for me, um, after the Navy, I also, when I was in naturopathic school, we, the school was brand new. I was in the first class. And so we didn't have financial aid available until after my third semester, so a year and a half in. So my savings from the Navy covered easily my first year. And I worked part-time to kind of augment that. But my third year, or my second year, my third semester, you know, I didn't have robust savings. Naturopathic school was expensive. So I had to bridge that financial gap. And so what I did is I worked at a teen shelter. I want to say it was three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from eight at night till eight in the morning. So I would literally wake up on Thursdays, you know, bike to naturopathic school, eight in the morning, be in class till five, bike home, take a quick nap, and then go work eight at night till eight in the morning, go immediately to naturopathic school, be awake that whole next day. Mm. I had to take another quick nap Jeez. and then like that eight hour cycle. So, you know, in that semester, I accrued a lot of sleep debt really quickly. And it was, you know, I had to do it if I wanted to stay in school. And so, I, you know, I knew it wasn't ideal, but I knew after I left naturopathic school that between the Navy and naturopathic school, that semester, at least I had probably built a lot of sleep debt. 
So this one winter when I was living in Connecticut, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to literally in the winter, let my body sleep as much as it needs. And there was about two weeks that I slept 12 hours a night and then slowly a little bit less and a little bit less. And then, you know, back to like only being able to sleep about eight hours. And I would have said before that, that I was one of those people that was always cold. My hands, like I had done massage after the Navy as a, like a hobby job. And I always was like super neurotic that my hands were so cold that it was like, I'd do everything to warm them up. And all of a sudden, like in that repaying sleep debt experience or, you know, experiment, my, I woke up one morning and my hands were warm for the first time I could remember in my life. And then like, they've always been like normal human hands since. <laughs> so. Interesting. so for me, like, I think I had built up a lot and then again, this would be my story. So one of the things I would see in patients is if you got them to sleep a bit more, they would come in for their next visit and say, you know, Dr. Greg, I took your advice. I'm sleeping a bit more, but I'm way more tired than normal. And so that would, would have been probably the most common thing I heard when I was you know, telling busy New Yorkers to sleep more. And so my story is what ends up happening to essentially survive our lives. That part is essentially just threw everything in a way back closet. And when we start sleeping more, it's like, oh, I get it. We're going to finally repay some of that sleep debt. It starts to pull it out. And that's when we essentially are experiencing for the first time, maybe in years. Because to survive our lives, we've you know, had to essentially put it way back. And the same thing you'll see um, commonly on vacations. People will all of a sudden sleep a lot more. Right? That, mm-hmm. like, again, that's yeah. to me, the system's smart. It's pulling that sleep debt out and repaying what it can during that time period. So like, I guess my story would be, if you can sleep, you need sleep. And if sleeping more, you're more tired, that's probably a cue that you have a lot of sleep debt that's buried in the closet somewhere and that's now being pulled out and just go with it for a while. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've experienced something similar, I guess, kind of tying sleep and immune function. Like maybe I'll have... Um, I know last time I got sick, I was, it was actually an anti-aging medical conference, you know, it's like 12 hours a day and it's super fun and invigorating. I'm barely sleeping, go, go, go. And then the next day I finally calm down, get a good night's sleep and boom, that's when I got sick. And it was like, my body was like, okay, we're going to hold on because you're busy. But the second you say, you know, green light go, we're going to boom. I, I think, that. I think that's super common, at least I, yeah. you know, maybe things are common because we look for it, but I've certainly encountered yeah. lots of people that it's when they get a pause from their super busy life that they'll all of a sudden get sick. And it's, I mm. think the system, again, like it's smart, right? It's holding things together until it has a chance that it can like, okay, like, you know, we can now finally deal with this. Yeah. But just because we're resilient, the, the advice isn't like, just go, go, go. You can pay it later, right? But no. that is sort of the fallback. And if you do have the opportunity, then get as much rest as possible. And I think but the winter is to, the ideal time for that. For, I think yeah. that it's easier to shift into some of that more hibernatory mode when there's less hours of daylight. Absolutely. So just going back to the beginning, we're talking about you, you, we probably need seven to eight hours to protect our immune. I just want to recap this to protect your immune system and also weight management, right? We're seeing a, a lot of changes happen if you do go too far into that sleep debt. Anything else that you want to say about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good summary. I think the other thing to pay attention to would be food cravings. 
So like a common thing in sleep research and consistent with the animals. If you feel like, so the way I would describe it to a patient is like that you want to have a hangover breakfast, right? So if like the classic yeah. thing that I know for hangovers, you want to go to like a Denny's, right? Yeah. Eat lots of starch, lots of fat. So if you feel like during the day, you're having a lot of cravings, that could also be a clue that sleep's not optimized, especially craving those types of things. Because that it seems to me, so in the hypothalamus, which is kind of a, like a master regulator part mm-hmm. of the brain, you have thirst drive, sex drive, hunger, sleep drive, uh, body temperature regulation, body clock. So all those things are there. And it seems to me that that the way it shows up in the real world is when we don't meet one of those drives fully, the we eat more as the compensation. So we don't get enough sleep, hunger drive goes up. We don't meet thirst, we eat more carbohydrates because those can be turned into water in our cells. We don't mm-hmm. meet, um, I, I tend to think of the sex drive more maybe almost as social or romance, but we don't get that need met. And I saw this routinely when I worked with patients in the late 90s and early 2000s, women quite often would then gain a lot of weight. And so to me, if we're struggling with weight, sometimes, again, that's that Tai Chi approach. Let's see if one of these other basic needs can be better met. And right. so then the need, like the, the need to defend that much body fat will go down. Because your body is right. being, it's essentially screaming to be heard in some capacity. It's just coming out in different yeah. ways. Yeah. yeah, I've definitely noticed the carbohydrate cravings. That happens like clockwork for me if I miss out on sleep or if I just have a bad quality night of sleep. I will crave and just be so hungry all day. And I've tested, we, so Renee and I both have CGMs. So we test our blood glucose and my blood glucose also is elevated the entire day if I don't sleep. Like my body is just screaming. It's so interesting. So important. But there's so I might be misremembering it, but I, I want to say there's one type of um, pond fish, like almost like a goldfish, but something that in the winter in the ponds, when the pond freezes, it, it essentially they suspended animation. And then when it thaws in the spring, they're back swimming around and they get tons of blood sugar. That's, that acts as antifreeze that allows them to essentially do that. Oh, um, funny. And so like, again, I think of like higher blood sugar as just part of like a hibernatory response to a degree. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's cool. I love hearing about different mammals or animals that have some crazy compensatory mechanism. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So another question for you before we wrap up, I'm curious about light sleep. We've heard that maybe light sleep is not that important, but obviously it's a built-in part of the cycle. Can you explain exactly what's happening in night sleep and why it's part of the cycle? Like, is it just catapulting you back into the deep and the REM sleep? Like, why do we need light? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I tend to think of it, and you, and this is very evident on Aura when you look at how they think, right? Like, sleep's a bit like a roller coaster, right? We'll, we'll go to wake, yeah. and then we should see like a pretty, you know, like that first drop down should be very fast and very deep, right? So, we'll go through light sleep on the way to deep sleep. And then at the beginning of the sleep period, we'll usually have very, very little REM sleep. Like proportionally, most of our REM sleep is towards the the morning time. Mm -hmm. And then we'll climb way back up that roller coaster. And so for me, what visually that looks like on Aura, I think it'd be the same on other, is there's like a little twinge of bite I get to. Like I've literally gone all the way up. My brain's not aware of waking up and then I plummet back in. And each of those we spend, or I'll, I personally spend more in light, less in rap, or less in deep. Like I tend to get more deep in those first 
first, second two cycles of the roller coaster. One of the things, I, I still don't think we know what each part of sleep does, but my understanding just from um, why we sleep is that light sleep has its own importance. Like I don't feel as refreshed if I have a night that I don't ever get much deep sleep compared to a night that I get an, a more normal or improved amount. But my understanding is that the light sleep stage is setting us up so we can take advantage of the deep sleep. So mm-hmm. it's important, just like there's no part of sleep that's not important. Really, right. is what it wouldn't happen that way. We didn't need it. Yeah. No. Um, but the ones that, you know, that are most important for daytime, like, you know, memory, retention, executive functions seem to be that we meet the threshold for both deep sleep and REM sleep. Yeah. Great. Really helpful. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And we were thinking that because I know Dave Asprey has said, like, light sleep's a waste of time. Just focus on deep and REM, but it's the whole package. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Dave is doing way more stuff than I'm doing, right? So he, he's really, so again, like when I was in the Navy, I, I was, since I was in reasonably good shape compared to the other officers, I was always put in charge of the people that weren't, that were having troubles with their weight or with the Navy physical fitness standards. And it was like pulling teeth, right? Like no, none of them, they were all busy people that were trying to do their job. They didn't want to be out doing, you know, running with Lieutenant Kelly at lunch type of thing. So one of the key things, both from that time period, from when I was in naturopathic school and time was this super scarce commodity for me between time in school and working part-time jobs, and then working in a practice in Greenwich, Connecticut with most of my patients being, you know, essentially what you would think of as hard driving New York, you know, professionals. It's important. There's the Dave Asprey where his whole life is, you know, able to take advantage of what he's been able to create to spend a lot of time optimizing. But the people I worked with in the Navy, the people that I worked with when I was in practice in Greenwich, Connecticut, I had to figure out ways that things could fit into an already maxed out or busy life. And so, you know, I think the most important thing to me is finding out that 80-20 rule. Like what are the, what's the one or two things that we can have you do that are going to give you the most bang for the buck, right? Like, and then everything else, it's chasing more the marginal. You know, I, I think it's awesome that, you know, the people that are really trying to optimize and that can do that. And, you know, in a practical sense, there's not maybe as many people that have that luxury. So, you know, to me, getting 10 minutes of morning sunlight is something that most people could could budget. Wearing blue blockers, you know, if they're going to be on their computer at night or, you know, watching Netflix, like that's a doable thing, right? You're not asking someone to change the core thing they're doing, but just asking them to tweak how they're doing. A little tweak. Yeah. And so like, to me, that's, that would be how, where I would try to meet most people is find out what you're doing and then find out if we can do that thing a little bit differently in a way that's going to make a, like be a big lever for your health. Yeah. Thank you. This has been so helpful. And I know we spent most of our time talking about sleep because we were so fascinated with it, but (laughs) at Neurohacker, you guys have an amazing line. You do a lot of incredible research in these products. So could you just do like a quick recap about Neurohacker, what you guys are up to and the, the amazing product line that you have? We talked about quality at night, but you guys have some pretty other stunning products. Yeah. So I think, um, I guess like in a nutshell, the way I would describe it is Neurohacker spends a lot of time thinking about performance 
um, optimization. And the key thing, probably more than anything else, is that I think of the word effort. You know, like to do better in anything requires some degree of effort. And if it requires effort, it requires energy. So, you know, our original product, Quality of Mind, would be something that is a nootropic stack, but it essentially helps your brain do more of the things that take effort. Our next product, was now it's called Quality of Life. It was originally called Eternus, is something that boosts NAD, that supports mitochondria in making ATP. And the same thing, like our, the way I would describe it is our cells have a ton of work to do, and they're doing it 24-7. What they do may change over the day, but they're still working really hard. And the mitochondria is what allows them to essentially put in more effort. So that product was designed to support a fitter mitochondrial network. And then our next product is an, an energy shot. So, you know, like a two ounce drink, which is, um, again, completely designed so that the brain can put more effort into things. And that's that, that idea of Kahneman's system to thinking. So executive function and social cognition are the key things that I wanted that to accomplish. So one of the things, I, like a quick aside, I tend to think of um, cognitive domains as being a bit of a pyramid. So we need to be alert and vigilant, right? So that's caffeine is your iconic, you know, nootropic mm -hmm. that does that. And then we, above that is attention. So we want to be able to focus our attention, concentrate, uh, things like choline donors, theanine, they do that. And then above that level of the pyramid, you have executive function. So all the skills that your brain does that allows us to be like that, you know, high-performing executive, you know, so that's working memory, it's ability to have cognitive flexibility, it's ability to choose to do certain things and choose to defer pleasure in other areas. So that's um, all your executive functions. And then above that, for most people is social cognition. So the three core skills there are being able to check in and see how we're feeling, like, like what's going on in my body, emotionally, mentally be able to look at someone else's body language like I'm doing right now and be able to read that and then shift accordingly. And then the last is to essentially put ourselves in someone else's shoes, that idea of empathy. And for most people, those take a lot of effort. Now there's going to be some people that's not true for it. Like that's super easy skills for them. But what ends up happening is when our brain doesn't have enough energy, higher up the pyramid is what gets turned off. Right. Mm. So like the, our nootropics, whether it's quality of mind, quality of focus, the energy shot are all designed to make sure you have the, the mental energy to be able to perform at those higher levels of the pyramid. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And then night is a way to indirectly, like that's the Tai Chi way to do it, right? It's let's support all the things that shift gears so that you can get more restorative sleep. So you can basically be a better version of yourself during the day. We call it a nighttime nootropic. It's not stimulating. It's not as sedating. It's just something that's really designed to help the brain be able to put in more work or more effort the next day. But taking to me, like when I think of things, there's the doing of it and then the recovering from the doing. And we need both to essentially create fitness. And so, balance, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, the, the quality of night would be just the recovery piece. And then the next product that will be coming out um, in September is for the immune system, and that's to help the immune system essentially be smarter and fitter. Awesome. I'm so excited for that. Yeah. So I personally take Qualia, uh, I take Eternus or Life, and I take Qualia Night, and I definitely feel like a better version of myself. So 
Uh, we're going to direct our audience to Neurohacker and all of those resources so they can check out Product Line and also all of um, resources that you have created through articles and blogs. Yes. You. And, and you have one last question. Well, I was going to say, and for our listeners, if you use code BiohackerBabes, you get 15% off. So Greg, thank you for all sharing that oh, with everyone. Um, great way to try all the products. Um, yeah. Yes. So Greg, before we let you go, one final yeah. question. If our listeners could start doing one thing differently today, what would be your number one piece of advice? So, I mean, this can vary over time, but today, because I just had a long talk with a, you know, someone that a really close friend yesterday about this, make decisions. If something's chewing up your mental bandwidth, if you're ruminating about it and they could be um, shut down with making some decision, don't try to optimize the decision. Just make some decision to shut that, um, that background noise off. And we free up more bandwidth, yeah. well, like lots of great things happen. So, so make, make decisions. Like Don't feel like you need yeah. to optimize them. But, you know, if something's really consuming your bandwidth, that's a, a huge clue that you'd benefit. Really, it's like holistically, not just our brain, if we can remove that and put that bandwidth to another use. Right. Yeah. Decision fatigue is a real thing. So that's great. Thank yeah, you for sharing that. Calming the noise. I love that. Thank you so much. You're yeah. welcome. Greg, this is amazing. Uh, we would love to have you back sometime. This is really informative about sleep. We're obsessed with it. And um, we thank you. We'll send our audience to all of your resources. And we really appreciate you spending your time with us today. Oh, it was awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Greg. And thanks for everyone else for tuning in. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.